Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains descriptions of war injuries and what happened to the bodies of the dead during the Great War. This may distress some listeners. It also contains some bad language. Hi, I'm Hannah, a PhD student studying women's anti-nuclear activism at Monash University and also an eternal grandma who likes to knit and crochet and garden all the time. And I'm Nicola, I'm a Masters of Teaching student and a historian and I am preparing for placement and I'm not stressed at all. I'm not stressed at all. How are you doing today, Hannah? I'm pretty good. I'm not stressed. I should be. I haven't had internet for a week, but... Oh, that explains a lot. All right. But this is Australia, so you kind of explains why you didn't pay your OnlyFans account. All right. Sorry about that. Well, I hope you're prepared to be super bummed out because this today is my wheelhouse. We're not doing your honours thesis, are we? No, because my honours thesis is on male suicide, so it's not that depressing and nowhere near as depressing as my post-honours academic attempts. World War One is depressing enough, what with all the dying and the bodies buried far from home, but today the question is, what if you can't even find out happened to the men who left you to go fight overseas? Oh, good God. So in most media at the beginning of World War One, there'll be at least one wide-eyed hopeful character who joins up as soon as he can because the war will be over by Christmas – This wasn't an uncommon view in 1914, or even as the war dragged into 1915. It wasn't the only view on the ground. As an example, modern dog tags are now made of tough metals, but the identity discs handed to some Australian Imperial Force, AIF, soldiers in World War I were made from compressed fabric or etched leather because no one was thinking that they'd need to survive long term. Paybooks were also used as a form of identification when bodies were too rotten or too damaged or too obliterated by a shell to be identified. Even most metal dog tags were made out of tin or aluminium, which aren't exactly the most long-lived metals. Of the 340,000 Australians who enlisted to fight in the war, 300,000 odd of those went overseas to fight. Of those 300,000, 60,000 died in battle, around 8,000 at Gallipoli and in the Dardanelles campaign, and the rest mostly on the Western Front, except the cool dudes who were getting tapeworm in the Palestine campaign. One guy had a nine-foot-long tapeworm. Mm, why would you tell me this? World War One. The modern weapons wrought by the Industrial Revolution and waged on the battlefields of World War I meant there was a new level to the death and destruction wrought by war. As so many, when, as so many men were sent to battle, many vanished, and no one knew if they were dead, taken prisoner, or had, had their faces blown off and were in a hospital somewhere, unable to identify themselves. And if there was a body, they might not even have any identification on them. Sometimes it would take weeks or even months to retrieve the bodies of fallen men from no man's land. And by then, their ID disc and paybook might have rotted away. Sucks to be them. Also, there were no photos in their records, just descriptions, like he had a fresh complexion and brown eyes. Which is also one of the reasons, incidentally, why it makes it hard to find like indigenous, indigenous and Chinese, yeah, for example, soldiers. Because yeah. they were described very ambiguously. Well, I have seen files that say yellow. Oh, God. Um... That's not ambiguous. Well, his last name was Kiang as well, yeah. so that made. But it like fun. a lot of indigenous soldiers, as well, yeah. like they were just dark Cause they complexioned because they weren't allowed to enlist yes. technically. One hundred percent. So it becomes the question, though: What happens when you send your son overseas to war and then you hear nothing from him? His battalion was in an action at Lone Pine, one of the few victories the Anzac saw at Gallipoli, if victory is the right word. But Lone Pine still saw tremendously high casualties. Who do you call? Ghostbusters. Who do you call? You can't call anyone. Phones haven't been invented yet. Well, they actually have, but like oh. not like not super excessively. Um, who do you telegram? Who do you think I am made of money? Who do you contact asking to help find your son, your brother, your father, your fiance, who totally promised you'd get married when you got back as long as you did it before he went overseas? 
The military, of course. Yes, you could reach out to the military, that's true. The first course of action when your soldier family member was missing in action was to write a letter to or telegram the army asking for more details. This could go somewhere or nowhere, and with 340,000 people to keep track of and occasionally getting letters about Kiwi soldiers as well, the Australian army was often brusque and rude to distressed relatives seeking information on what had happened to their men. So where do you go when your soldier's son is missing and the army won't help you? I mean, considering the title of this episode is Vera Deacon and the Red Cross... Well, considering the title of this episode is Vera Deacon and the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau, I'm going to assume you contact Vera Deacon and the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau. Yes, like if you're going to donate blood today, you'd head straight for the Red Cross, and more specifically back then, the Wounded and Missing Bureau. Vera Deacon is commonly held as the mother of the Red Cross in Australia. She was a key player in the establishment of the originally Swiss organisation, hey Evelyn, in both Victoria and in Australia. The Red Cross today does a lot of charity work, um, but has also been criticised in Australia for not taking blood donations from men who have sex with men, which is of good interest to me due to my research in Australia's response to the HIV AIDS pandemic, but not really relevant right now, so we're going to put that controversy over there in the corner. All right. In my experience, overall, the Red Cross does more good than ill. And that's all we're going to say about that. Um, did you know about the Red Crescent? I did, because when I was in Geneva last year, year before last, um, I went to the Red Cross Museum. And ah. that is, I think it's it's definitely one of the top museums I've ever been to, possibly the top. Like, it was really well done. Like, museum. it was so well done. Like, it was really interactive. Mm-hmm. Like, you and I both have issues about museums that are just, like, static text on a wall. And this had, like, different exhibitions where you could, like, touch things and you could go in and, like, sit down and then, like, audiovisual presentations would start, like, someone was talking to you, but also, like, what the Red Cross does today yeah. around the world to do with, like, floods and war and stuff. So, yeah. really interesting. If you're in Geneva, check it out. Highly recommend. Yeah. So, if you don't know, though, the Red Crescent is... Um, Sorry, that was a very unhelpful yeah. answer, <laughs> I just love the Red Cross Museum. Yeah. The Red Crescent is the, um, basically... It's the same organisation in Islamic regions. So instead of a cross, which isn't actually a Christian cross, but you can understand why people will get confused, it's a red crescent. And there also used to be, there is also a red crystal, which isn't in high use, and a red lion, which is no longer used. Also because it's really hard to draw. And I feel like if you're in a war and you've got like a hospital and you want to spray quickly, I need to draw a lion. Don't don't bomb this hospital. It's easier to draw a crescent or a cross than to draw a lion. Excuse me, someone can, do we have an artist here who can just casually draw a lion? Yeah. So Vera Deacon worked with the Red Cross during both World Wars I and II. But today we're focusing on her work with the Red Cross in World War I um, and the work of the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau in World War I generally. And Nicola has promised that one day she will write an episode on the Bureau in World War II. <laughs> Which, you know, look, watch this space <laughs> is all I can say. The Red Cross today has nearly 100 million volunteers around the world and is unique in international humanitarian law able to provide protection and dignity for the victims of armed conflicts. So this is more going to be the first chapter in a long-term discussion of the Red Cross's work throughout history in various different fields because they do pop up in a lot of wars. Yeah, the other reason I'm not going to talk about Red Cross in World War II today is I'm on a self-imposed ban from talking about World War II for a bit and France. Um, France is going to come up yet, but we're not going to just be hanging around France too much today. I'm a bit sick of France and insulting the French with my terrible accent. And if you mention France unnecessarily, I may kick you out of my house. 
please don't. I also set myself a challenge for this episode. Um, it has to be less than the screed I wrote about Edith Piaf, which clocked in at over 10,000 words, um, not including the lyrics to Love and Rose. But this episode isn't just about Vera Deacon. This episode is about three women, Patty Brown, Vera Deacon, and Sarah Irwin. Any relation to uh, Steve Irwin? Get out of my house. Oh, wait, this, this is, is my house. house. I didn't mention France, though, so it's okay. It's a glimpse into the lives and roles three women played during the Great War in Australia. It was inspired by a chapter in the very depressing book, World War I, A History in 100 Stories, by Bruce Gates, Beck Wheatley, and Laura James. If you're feeling too happy in your day-to-day life, curl up with that bad boy and you'll be depressed in no time. Bruce and Beck especially set me on a course towards studying World War I and war history, so this is my little winky-wink hat tip to them. Yeah, actually, they, they got me into Australian history. Really? Yeah, I was not interested in Australian history all through high school and early undergrad because I was like, it's really boring, it's just Anzac, I don't care. And then I did an Anzac course in my third year with Beck. And yeah, I was like, this is really that interesting. That would have been the same course me and Danny did. Yeah, it was very, and, very yeah. good. And, you know, Bruce is fab. And so finally I got interested in Australian history, and here I am, an Australian historian. <laughs> who is also a historian of Australian history, not just a historian who happens to be Australian. Accurate. First off, though, we're not going to talk about Patty Brown, Sarah Irwin, or Vera Deacon. We're going to talk about the elephant in the lodge. For our international listeners, the name Deacon will make any Australian's ears prick up, much like Skippy's when someone whistles for assistance. Alfred Deacon, the second, fifth and seventh Prime Minister of Australia, yes, we've always done it like that, was Vera's father. He is the namesake of Deakin University in Victoria and the Canberra suburb of Deakin. He was one of the fathers of Federation, was key in the drafting of the Australian Constitution, and he was also a Liberal in the sense of economics, not in the sense of social politics. And also he was a key architect of the White Australia policy, which were a set of policies aimed to stop non-Europeans and even certain kinds of Europeans from coming to Australia. It was especially targeted at Asian people, especially Chinese people and Pacific Islanders. Plantation owners were happy to blackbird Pacific Islanders, but fuck letting them come legally. Yeah, Australia likes to be like, we don't have slavery in our history, but oh, we God, really it's do. Vomitous. The key element of this policy, the White Australia policy, was the Immigration Restriction Act, which was the first piece of policy passed by the new Parliament of the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. It was rooted in pre-existing racial tensions and state and colony-based laws specifically designed to keep non-European and even non-British migrants from coming to Australia. It was also based on the South African Immigration Restriction Act of 1897, so cheers, South Africa. South Africa is not what you want to model yourself on. Do you know um, nowadays, if you've got an especially racist South African, they go, why don't you move to Australia? Oh, God. Yeah. That's not good. And Zimbabwe as well. That's not good. Yeah. Deacon was the key creator of many of these policies, which were only finally dismantled in the 1970s, though they began to be pulled apart soon after the end of World War II. You know, something, something, populate or perish, whatever. So that's the elephant in the lodge, and the lodge is today actually located in the Canberra suburb of Deakin. It all comes full circle. It all comes full circle. Deakin and his wife instilled a sense of modesty, hard work and humility in all of their children. Elizabeth Martha Ann Brown, Deacon's wife, who was nicknamed Patty for some reason, was a relatively well-educated young woman born in Victoria in the mid-1860s. Patty Brown met Alfred in 1877 when she was 14 years old at a meeting of a spiritualist society. They married five years later in 1882. Glad he waited till she was over 18. Deacon at the time was a member of the Legislative Assembly of Victoria, which would eventually become the Parliament of Victoria since Federation was still 18 years off. They would have three children... Ivy, Stella and Vera, the youngest. Though she was a dedicated and hard-working mother through her children's early lives, Patty remained an active member of public life and was president of the Victorian Neglected Children's Aid Society, as well as a member of the Queen's Fund, which worked to help 
quote, women in distress, unquote. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what they meant by that because it could mean genuinely women in distress or women they held to be in distress but weren't actually. Yeah. 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 I I imagine there was a lot of classism going on in that. Like, you know, those charities at the time, there was so much classism. And religious-based And religious, yeah, yeah. morality issues, yeah. Mm. Patty was also active in the arts. She chaired the Nursery and Kinder Committee for the Australian Exhibition of Women's Work, which was held in 1907 at the Exhibition Building. This was an exhibition of both crafts and women-focused areas of concern, at least those held to be important to women at the time. In addition to displays of arts and crafts from all around the world, Patty Deacon also ran the model creche on display, which led to an increase in childcare in Victoria. Eventually, Patty would become the first president of the Association of Creches. The Creche Association... Oh, say that three times fast. Creche Association. Creche Association. Creche... I can't. The Creche Association provided daycare for children from difficult homes on the recommendation of a social worker. Interestingly, in World War II, the creches were deemed essential services, and so workers there had to get permission to leave their jobs, presumably to join the war effort. I have to guess that the creches were essential so more women were able to go join the workforce with the def- the um, all the men leaving the country. Patty also helped form and led the Free Kindergarten Union. That I love the name of this because I imagine all these like kindergartners like running running free, through the streets, like, like free range kindergartners. They yeah, like marching in the streets, like union, like oh, I, I picture like free range chickens, like they're all just scratching in the dirt. No, I was like kindergartners striking. <laughs> um, and they also assisted in the establishment of the Bush Nursing Association, which aimed to organise effective nursing and medical services in rural areas. And she also organised the Melbourne District Nursing Society, which worked with medical care in the Melbourne District. She and Alfred, who'd been Prime Minister a couple of times by then... What, like it's hard? We have Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister. You don't need to be intelligent to do it. She also... Um, so she and Alfred actually also established the Guild of Play for Children's Playgrounds, which helped bring in play areas for children in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. So don't assume this is all sweetness and light and pure generosity. Many benevolent associations in this period, especially the religiously backed ones, had morals clauses and rules and guidelines for how those who used their services had to act. I don't know if this was a rule for Patty's organisations or just some of them, but let's not pretend the deacons were helping create some class-free utopian Melbourne. That's what the kindergartners were doing. Yeah. That's why they were striking. Yeah. So in 1909, Patty gained her St John's Ambulance Certificate. As you can probably figure from everything we just told you, Patty and Alfred instilled a sense of community responsibility, humility and generosity in their daughters, except for all the racism and trade protectionism Alfred was responsible for. As with Vera, Patty became active during the Great War and played a very feminine role in assisting with the AIF. There have always been roles women have been allowed to play in a military sphere. Some of these are doting wife, doting wife who pretends not to notice her husband has a venereal disease when he returns from overseas, wartime singer, as we talked about with Edith Piaf, and other female-focused occupations such as nursing and feeding soldiers. Not that kind of nursing, like the medical kind of nursing. (laughs) There are also non-official, non-respected roles women were expected to play during wartime, including sex work. And there's official non-respected roles, like women who worked in safe sex education in World War I, like most notably Etty Rout, who we will cover on another episode. Yeah, we'll probably have expert historian on STDs and stuff like that on this podcast, Danielle Broadhurst, to discuss Eddie's work. Um, Danny, can you please come and talk about Eddie? All right, so for now, let's go back to Patty Brown. Well, Deacon, Patty Deacon. Patty, during the war, set up the Soldiers' Refreshment Stall, which was on St Kilda Road in Melbourne, and presumably served tarts along St Kilda Road. <laughs> little uh, subtle joke for some of you out there. Google. <laughs> the stall was also known as the Anzac Buffet. 
Staffed by volunteers, because of course it was, the Anzac Buffet served men who were just about to be deployed to the war or had just returned from overseas. In 1915, it was serving 4,000 soldiers a week, handing out meals, clothes, cash and gifts. Women in World War I Australia had a relatively limited role in what they could do to assist the war effort. Unlike World War II, which saw the mobilisation of many women, both to take up men's roles and roles newly needed by the military, women were only really able to serve the AIF as nurses and medical staff in World War I. Women also unofficially took over men's roles on farms and in some workplaces, but there was not the mass gender shift we saw during the late 30s and early 40s. Most women, if they wanted to be involved in the support effort for World War I in Australia, worked in volunteer care and comfort roles, including knitting items of clothing for the men abroad, making care packets and supporting the Red Cross and other soldiers' benevolent associations. You also had to be kind of wealthy to do those aspects. You also had to be kind of wealthy to be able to do these aspects of volunteering. And if you're a working class woman with four kids and your husband just joined the AIF, you're probably spending all your time taking on work to feed your family. Um, then you have to be able to, like, you know, spend time knitting socks for men that you don't know. Like, not saying anything wrong with knitting socks for soldiers. It's really important, but they had other things going on. Yeah. Well, also the AIF soldiers were relatively high paid, so. Out of all the other soldiers in like the entire war, Australian soldiers were actually very well paid. But yeah, only some of that was coming back to the women. Yeah. So yeah, you don't know. Yeah. And like this idea of knitting for the men has been so baked into like some people's cultural memory. My grandma, she served in World War Two, uh, and in 2012 she was in her 90s. She was quite demented, and she was knitting s- scarves for soldiers in Afghanistan. Aww. Also, it was a bright blue scarf, so it's like grandma. It's Afghanistan. It's hot. So I know you don't need a scarf. And bright Actually, blue. It can get very oh, cold okay. in Afghanistan. Okay. Well, bright blue is still not very cold. Yeah, it was. It's like grandma. That's so sweet. So though. Like, she did wear blue when she served, so maybe that's why. Yeah. But I think it's more just she had blue. Yeah. And she likes blue. It's really, that's really sweet. But yeah. Um, so Vera Deacon was in many ways an exception to this rule. Though she was from a wealthy, highly educated upper class background. I mean, her dad was prime minister three times after all. Like, it's hard. Vera took on an almost official militaristic clerical role as one of the leaders of the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau and took charge of a staff of up to 60, coordinating the locations or final resting places or last known whereabouts of thousands of Australian and occasionally New Zealand servicemen. The Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau located thousands of men before the advent of email, easy access to telephones, and all of this during a war that had split France and Belgium in twain. In twain! And Ireland. In twain! And Europe in general, really. In twain! And the Ottoman Empire. Actually, no, the Ottoman Empire was like lots of little yummy flaky bits coming off the top of baklava. Vera Deacon, like Jesus, was born on the 25th of December 1891. But unlike Jesus, probably, she was born in South Yarra. She was highly musical and played strings, including violin and cello, and she also sang. She wanted to pursue a career in music, which was supported by her music teachers, but her parents wanted her to do something useful. So she got a degree in English literature at Melbourne University while still working on her music. Much more useful. She was quite well travelled for a wealthy woman in the yeah. 1910s. Yeah, we can't really talk about arts degrees. Yeah, she was quite well travelled, relying her parents' wealth and influence. And in 1913, she travelled with her aunt to Berlin and Budapest. There, she studied at a couple of musical schools, and it was also the reason she was in Europe at the outbreak of World War One. It seems her parents weren't fans of her going to the continent to study music, but they were even less fans of her being on the continent when there was a war on. Valid. If anyone was wondering, Alfred Deakin was done with being Prime Minister at this point, like completely. Who was Prime Minister at this point? <laughs> Andrew Fisher on his third go-round. Why are you humming? Remember that song I wrote with all the names of the Australian Prime Ministers in it? And it has them in order and how many times they're Prime Minister? Yeah. yeah. So it's Andrew Fisher on his third go around. Okay. So Vera was either ordered home or came home willingly. Her parents, though kind, could be quite strict. And remember, there was a war on. But also, there was a war on. 
And so despite her parents protesting, she joined up with what was then the British Red Cross Society and studied nursing. Just a little preview of how difficult it was to be a nurse in the Great War. They had not discovered penicillin yet, and Lister's series of hygiene had only been developed in the 1870s. So you had to wash and sterilise things using boiled water and carbolic soap, which had in it carbolic acid, which is, you can probably guess, acidic and can burn your skin. But you won't die from sepsis, which is always nice. Carbolic acid is still used to treat ingrown toenails, sore throats, and also as a paint stripper. That's concerning. Use this as an example, though, next time someone's like, this medicine has chemicals in it, ergo it's bad. It's all about how much and what concentration. Technically, everything's chemicals. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, when you think about it, carbolic acid, though a scary concept, has probably saved millions from death by infection. I'm getting a little bit excited by this little detour into medical history. Please stop. Speaking of being stopped, segue... Every woman and their dog wanted to be a nurse in the Great War. According to Peter Rees, the other Anzacs, a.k.a. Anzac Girls, what the very horny TV show was based on, there was an immediate surge in Australia in both trained nurses volunteering to become military nurses and non-nurses signing up to be trained. This demonstrates the wide-eyed innocence a lot of Aussies did have going into the war on a personal and institutional level. So many, men, so many Australian men volunteered to join the AIF that in the early period of the war, the recruiters had to pick the absolute best Australia had to send. The recruiters asked for men at least 5 foot 6 inches tall with a chest measurement of 34 inches. So 5 6 is around 168 centimetres. Compared with the British soldiers whose average height was 5 feet 2 inches, this led to the concept of the Australian as a huge broad-chested colonial. Why are we talking about the size of the soldiers? I love measuring shit, but also... Okay, so it's like when you lined them up, you could, when you looked at a group of Australian soldiers, you could often tell when they'd been recruited. Not to the month or anything, but like you'd be like, you started at the start of the war, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Because unless they were like an 18 year old at the end of the war, chances are the big guys were from the early parts of the Mm -hmm. war, and the smaller they got, the later on they'd signed up. It was also a key driver in the development of the NHS in Britain because they saw all the Canadian soldiers and all the... Uh, I think the Canadians were actually taller than the Australians. Damn. But, so, I do like that I was taller than the British soldiers. Yeah, yeah. That gives me like a little hit because I'm taller than nobody. You are. You're taller than a lot of um, the enlisted men in Britain. Yeah. But um, so the British government and the people saw how big all the like colonial people were and they were like, why aren't our men this big? And it's because the Australians and the Canadians had access to so much better food mm. and healthier air and that's one of the reasons the fresh NH- food. That's one of the reasons the NHS developed in the UK. And they've that's forgotten cool. all about that now. But anyway, that's and so really have cool. we. All right. So by the close of the war, however, any all of the countries were taking anyone with two feet and a pulse. It was a similar story with women wanting to sign up to be military nurses. There were massive waiting lists, and at least 140 Aussie and Kiwi nurses actually sailed off to England to join the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service, which is the equivalent to the Australian Army Nursing Service. One historian estimates that altogether, including nurses who didn't serve with the AANS but joined with private medical units in Europe, there are about 2,500 Aussie nurses who served abroad in World War I. As with the Australia and New Zealand Army Corps, ANZACs, there was a lot of crossover between the Australian and New Zealand Army nursing services. As with the AAF recruiters taking the tallest, bustiest men they could find, thanks to the high amount of interest, the AANS got to set stringent standards. Aussie Army nurses had to have trained for at least three years in an approved hospital, be aged 21 to 40, and be either single or widowed. Some nurses did marry in the early days of the war, and their bosses were like, 
just ignore that. Please throw that man's face back together, please. Thanks and goodbye. It's a very historical quote. Anyway, so that's probably why Vera joined up with the British Red Cross Victorian branch. Perhaps she felt it was the quickest route to nursing on the front. Perhaps she just really liked the wimple. But Vera also loved the Red Cross. But sitting and studying, or likely standing and studying with hands-on practice because it's the olden days, wasn't enough for Vera. She wanted to get back to Europe or wherever the war was and get some work done. The Red Cross said they wouldn't mind actually if she hopped on over to Egypt and perhaps she could be put to work there. Why Egypt? It was where the Anzacs were being held if they weren't at Gallipoli, undergoing some training in the hot, dry Egyptian desert, which would work out super well for those that went onto the mud and sludge of the Western Front. Vera went, heck yes, leapt on a ship and arrived at Port Said on October 20th, 1915. The next day, she opened the Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau because there were already reams and reams of men who had gone missing at Gallipoli. Vera was perfect for this job. She was upper class, was well-educated, and had both Australian and international contacts thanks to her parents' work in politics and the social sphere. From day one, the Wounded and Missing Inquiry Bureau were inundated with requests for information and intel. It was all about matching up what they knew with who they needed to know about. It was a mammoth task. And remember, the Gallipoli and Greater Dardanelles campaign was more or less done and dusted by the end of 1915 including those who died of wounds, disease, and obviously those who were killed in action, around 8,100 Australian men died at Gallipoli. There were about 70 known prisoners of war by the end. You think that sounds difficult? Just you wait. Though the majority of Australian soldiers in World War I fought in Europe on the Western Front, some groups, including the Light Horse, were redeployed to fight in the Sinai and Palestine campaigns against the Ottoman Turks and their German allies. One such group sent out to the Middle East was the Mesopotamian Half Flight, which was the first Australian Flying Corps unit to see active service in World War I. It included four trained Australian pilots, which was a little over half the trained pilots in Australia at the time. One of these men was Captain Thomas White. White had only begun flying after the war had been declared, but he which was... shows you how many trained pilots they really had in Australia. Like, ah, him! He'll do! <laughs> There's like one guy, like, I can fly a plane. I mean, to be fair, planes hadn't been around that long, so... They had it, but like, you didn't need more than four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. White had only begun flying after the war had been declared, but he was a natural and often flew reconnaissance missions and sabotage missions behind enemy lines. Then, in November 1915, White and his observer, i.e. the guy in the plane with him... By the way, these guys are flying biplanes with a top speed of 80 kilometres an hour. Oh my god, can I just say, I found out this when I was reading, rereading about it, because I knew about the half-flight, but I didn't know anything about what they'd done. The plane's top speed was 80 kilometres an hour, but sometimes the wind would be like 120 kilometres an hour, or it would be straight 80. So you'd be flying the plane, but it wouldn't be going anywhere. You'd just be like hovering, <laughs> like shit, shit, shit. Or you'd be being blowing backwards. That is fabulous. And often if they'd like, like land... Obviously not fabulous, but that is fabulous. And often they'd like have to land and they just sort of have to drive the plane away from people <laughs> before they could take off. Like, ah! I love uh, this. History of the Air Force is fun. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's so great. They go from like boxes with flaps on them to like bombers. It's amazing. And they had to be all the short men so they could actually fit in the cockpit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Okay. So White and his observer were on a mission to cut telegraph wires near Baghdad. Their plane went down, and though they tried to taxi away, they were caught and handed over to Turkish troops. Thomas and his observer, Francis Yeats Brown, were sent to a POW camp near Mosul. Mosul? By December 1915, as anyone who went to an Australian primary school would know, the Anzacs were done with Gallipoli. Over the course of a few weeks, in the dead of night, they sneakily set up drip action systems on their rifles so they would keep randomly firing, giving the impression to the Ottoman troops that there were still lots of men in the trenches. While this was going on, all the Anzac troops sneakily snuck back onto the troop ships and the silly Ottoman troops were none the wiser. One day the Ottomans woke up and they were like, 
Oh no, the Anzacs are gone. Only that didn't happen. The Ottomans were more than like very likely aware of what had been going on, but they'd been stuck on the other side of what was a hideously ineffective, brutal and useless dirty trench war over a useless patch of land. They too had lost thousands of men, we're not exactly sure of numbers here, and they couldn't wait for the Anzacs to fuck off so each side could stop bleeding each other out with jammed in bombs and snipers. We are just hacking through Wobble on content today with a machete. It's just pouring out of me like I've been hacked with a machete. We're just throwing it out there. Yep. Like, take random World War One facts. Yeah, just fucking do it. Yeah, just take them. All right. Caught them? Great. Yep. As the focus of the Anzacs turned to the Western Front, so did the focus of the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau. Vera relocated the Bureau to London in 1916 as to be near the major centres of information about the war. And lucky she did. 8,000 dead and less than 100 captured on Gallipoli would look like small potatoes compared to the carnage of the Western Front. In the first major battle involving Australian troops, the Battle of Fromel in July 1916, 2,000 men would be killed in action or die of wounds from that one battle. 400 were made prisoners of war. Pompey Elliott was there. Pompey Elliott saw he was at the inquiry into Fromel after the war. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Nicola knows a lot about Pompey Elliott, just so you know. His name wasn't Pompey, it was Harold. Eventually, over 45,000 men in the AAF would die on the Western Front and 4,000 would be taken prisoner. And so Vera and the Bureau's work grew until they were dealing with 25,000 requests for information per year. All right, so now let's zoom out, away from Vera Deakin and her work in London. Let's think back to those in Australia, who we would probably be, who are making one of those 25,000 requests. How would you go about getting help from the Red Cross? First off, you would have to be having trouble with the AIF and getting their help in finding your missing male kin. The AIF was granted... Very busy at the time, but they literally have two jobs. One, fight. Two, keep an eye on the people doing the fighting. If you lost track or contact with your male kin, it would take a while for this realisation to come to you if you were back in Australia. Letters could take weeks or even months to wind their way back from your loved one's hands into the hands of the censor, who was often a priest on board a ship, and then would have to come to Australia, to your state and to your town. You thought waiting for your online shopping during the pandemic was bad. You might not even realise your son, brother, husband was missing for months. If the military couldn't or wouldn't help you track down your loved one, that was when the family would then turn to the Red Cross. By using a soldier's rank, battalion and unit details, the Red Cross would contact soldiers in the missing man's platoon, asking for details of the man's last known whereabouts. It was almost like a murder mystery being solved from thousands of miles away via post and telegram. Sometimes the answer would be quick, clean and easy. Warning, France mentioned. Get out. This is my one ticket. All my right. French ticket. I'll allow it. Following the Battle of Bulacore on April 11th, 1917, the first use of tanks alongside Australian troops, which did not end well, um, Private Patrick Hogan of the 4th Battalion lost his mate, Private James Shaw. He was so distressed by this that he even composed a poem, Jim, about his lost, presumed dead friend. However... Friend? The... I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, you don't often write poetry about your dead friends that are platonic. Like, I... you could... It's... It's, it's hard. It's hard. What skews it also is like two of the most famous World War One poets were gay. Mm. So it's like, like friendship, like we don't think of friendship as love the same way that it is. So yeah. you could write a poem to your platonic friend, but also, mm. also you have to remember a lot of Australian soldiers in this period of time were very Australians are one of the most literate countries in the world. Yeah. Um, with the obvious exception of Indigenous people who were so mm. poorly treated, they often didn't have access to that kind of schooling. Mm. Um, so they were a lot more literate, maybe. And, like, the idea of what a male friendship should look like was slightly different Yeah, it was, then. definitely. And, I mean, like, 
male friendships on the front lines of war are also going to be very different to yeah. like male friendships down at the pub. It's often called the love that must not be named or mm. dare not speak its name. But um, also, I haven't got a copy of the poem. I looked everywhere for it. But because it's like it's buried in the file in the war memorial, I have to go up to Canberra to get it or get someone to look Fair. at it for me. Actually, like, speaking of poems about uh, wartime love, yeah. I have a book from the Palestine campaign. Um, from my family ancestor. And there's a poem in there. It's fabulous. Is it called Tapeworms, Tapeworms? <laughs> Not Tapeworms, Tapeworms. It's about a guy and his love for his horse. And not that, no, not that kind of no, way, Nicola. That, that face was. Do you know what happened to the horses? Yeah, in that's the point one? of the poem. Oh god, that's the point of the poem. He's like, and he's like, I just want to shoot my horse rather than leave my horse behind because I love my horse so much. It was really pure. Sorry, mum. All right, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll chuck it on the Twitter. Yeah, no, like sorry, it's I find the the, the animals in Wibble One. Oh really, yeah, that's, like, bum me out. That's a there. whole other issue. That really bums me. Out. Sorry, I shouldn't have brought it up. No, that's okay. Tapeworms, 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 right. tapeworms. Fabulous poem. So we're talking about Private James Shaw, who um, had gone missing at the Battle of Bullocor, and Private Patrick Hogan of the 4th Battalion wrote a poem about it. Yeah, that was a really bad time to really get detailed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> However, so the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau was on the case. Lieutenant Wilkins of the 15th Battalion was able to let the Red Cross know that Shaw had been taken prisoner at the First Battle of Bullocor. The Red Cross were then able to reach out... The Red Cross were then able to reach out to their German counterparts and confirm that Shaw was being held at a prisoner of war camp in Anhalt Zerbst, about 800 kilometres away. Said Shaw, quote, am in fairly good health, received parcels which are greatly appreciated, unquote. This information had made it back to the Red Cross headquarters in London by November 1917, meaning Shaw was found relatively quickly within eight months. He was then moved to Dolmen, around 400 kilometres away. Shaw survived his time as a POW and was back in London by January 1919. But it wasn't always so easy. By 1917, the AAF and branches of the military were operating with expertise that only come after horrifically steep learning curves following the earlier fighting at Gallipoli and the carnage the Anzacs faced on the Western Front through 1916. Following the confusion of the landing and fighting at Gallipoli, the Red Cross Wounded and Missing Bureau had had its hands full from a very early on in the war, and sometimes it could take years to locate a missing man if he could be located at all. As everyone knows, there are many ways to lose a body, but let's just use three for example. One, a man is injured on Gallipoli, taken aboard one of the quickly overwhelmed hospital ships. His details are taken down incorrectly or not at all. He dies, and because there are so many injured and dying being brought onto the ship, they have no room and have to chuck him overboard. There is no refrigerated morgues at this point. He will eventually be marked down as killed in action and buried at sea with no gravestone, only named on the buried at sea slash memorial to the missing plinth, which is in the Lone Pine Cemetery at Gallipoli. Two, an Australian man is crossing no man's land, either on Gallipoli or the Western Front. He is shot and killed, and his body falls into a shell hole, where his comrades cannot safely go and retrieve his body. Perhaps they didn't even see him fall at all. His body stays there and bloats and rots beyond recognition. Remember the main forms of ID Anzacs originally had during the war? His paybook rots and the leather ID tag he had made on leave in London has all the details washed out of it. Maybe sometime in 1920 they find his remains and he is provisionally identified by a surviving 13th Battalion patch on his shoulder and one gold tooth, but he could be one of dozens of men from that battalion killed with a gold tooth. He will eventually be buried under a gravestone that reads... A soldier of the 13th Battalion, AIF, known unto God. Scenario 3. A soldier is trying to cross no man's land to raid a trench. He steps on a shell and is turned into what some soldiers called pink mist. He is absolutely obliterated and there is nothing of him left. Some of his comrades swear they saw him fighting in the trench later on though, and it was actually another person who got blown up. Others know it was him who got atomized. Another person claims he was taken prisoner. 
His name is eventually put on the memorial wall in a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery near to where he died. So time's up by 60,000 dead and however many more time taken prisoner and you can see how complex the Red Cross's job was. And yet Vera Deacon didn't let this turn her into a bitter hard woman like a cashew. She stayed kind and compassionate like an almond and often took personal interest in cases. Okay, two things. Almond? Almond. Yeah. Second thing, almonds are more bitter. I'm pretty sure. But I prefer almonds. Okay, but that's your personal opinion. Yeah, but like also you have to shell a cashew so it's like she's hard like a cashew shell. So, let's now turn to one particular case that was uncovered by Skates, Wheatley and James in the 100 Stories Project. This is the case of Sarah Irwin, her husband George, and their son George, who fought at Gallipoli and vanished. Their son George was 19 when he enlisted in May, born in Goulburn and worked as a commercial artist in Sydney. George was present at the Battle of Lone Pine. George was in the first charge, but following that he vanished. No one knew what had happened to him. There was no body and no evidence. Sarah Irwin did everything she could to find her son up to meeting up with returning troop ships and interviewing disembarking soldiers. It's hard to imagine this kind of radio silence in a pre-radio, pre-internet time. Months and months had passed with no word. Was her son alive and without memory in some English hospital somewhere? She wasn't wrong. There was more than one soldier who had lost his mind in the war and wasn't able to be identified. This included one soldier who was thought for a long time to be an Aussie due to a tattoo of the flag he had, but he simply could not be identified beyond that. He was kept in an asylum, and then one day his picture made its way to New Zealand. It wasn't an Aussie flag tattoo at all. It was a Kiwi flag. And though his mind never fully recovered, he was eventually reunited with his family. Another reason for us maybe to both change our flags. And the date. Our date. We should change the date. Change you the know date. what date we're talking about. You know what we're talking about. The army was useless to help the Irwin family, and so Sarah contacted the Red Cross. In 1916, she composed a letter. So we've gotten a new voice in to play Sarah. A boy whose name I do not know has just returned from the front wounded. He was with my boy fighting side by side at Lone Pine on August 6, and he sent me word that my boy was taken prisoner at the same time as he himself received his wounds. He knew my boy well, and if he can be relied on, it should provide a help in tracing him. Another soldier wrote from the front, George was one of the bravest in his battalion and was the first to reach the third line of the trenches without being wounded. He was last seen to jump into the enemy's trench and after the battle they removed their wounded and buried their dead, but your boy was not amongst them. Therefore I think he must have been taken prisoner. These letters have been transcribed by me from primary sources, that is, original historical documents, but I have edited them to make them a little bit easier to follow. A-plus historian. Thank you very much. In mid-1916, the questions about George Irwin crossed Vera Deacon's desk, and she began seeking information about George, checking if he was indeed a prisoner in Turkey. She received word from Corporal Cliff of the 4th Company, who was being held in Bilmedik, prisoner of war camp, in August 1916. And I've got another new voice in to play Corporal Cliff. I've just received your card inquiring for news of Private Irwin, but I'm very sorry I can't give you any information about him. I know every Australian here. I'm the only one of the 4th Battalion here, worse luck. I can only suggest he may be in a hospital somewhere, but I doubt it. Fair. The card, sorry. The card also talked about an inquiry Cliff had about a Corporal Dwyer, but he too was not at the camp. He asked Deacon to please pass that information on to Thea Dwyer back in New South Wales. Vera also wrote back to the Irwins during the course of the investigation, lending a human touch and a sense of compassion to what would otherwise have been an agonising, excruciating and impersonal wait. 
Unfortunately, these letters are not in George's Red Cross file, as they would be in the Irwin family's personal possession. Despite the lack of clear information, the Irwins clearly appreciated the work Deacon and the Red Cross were putting in. Dear Miss Deacon, Letters from my husband tell of his call upon you, and I feel I must write and thank you for all the trouble you have taken in trying to trace our dear boy. I am so sorry to hear that you have lost a dear friend who was a prisoner. It is very sad to think right after all the poor fellows have gone through that they should die in prisoner camps. Far better to be killed in action. It was such a great comfort to my husband to know that everything possible has been done to trace our child. So what did happen to Private George Irwin? The answer was in the Red Cross files all along. It seems that Sarah and George, her husband, own investigations into their son's disappearance only confuse things. It also shows how much information about the war passed around in a very long game of telephone. On December 20th, 1915, the Red Cross received word from Corporal Solomons of the 4th Battalion, where he was currently stationed in Cairo. Here, Irwin was missing since 5th August 1915. Solomons told the Red Cross that Irwin never returned after the charge at Lone Pine. Ambiguous. As we said earlier on, this meant he could be dead, a prisoner, or had lost his mind and was in an asylum somewhere. In January 1916, another member of the 4th Battalion, Quartermaster Sergeant Elliot, wrote to the Red Cross that two men had come forth and stated they saw that George had been wounded and left behind during an Australian retreat. There was no doubt in the informants' minds that the men left behind were made prisoners and so George might still be a prisoner. News kept coming in. In February, Private Smith sent word to the Red Cross that a sergeant he knew had seen Irwin the day before the Battle of Lone Pine, and that same sergeant had been asking around about Irwin since they had returned to Egypt. A friend of the sergeant had told him that Irwin was, quote, knocked over in the charge at Lone Pine. Right after this information was received, however, the Red Cross got that word from Sarah Irwin that she had two witnesses who claimed they'd seen George taken prisoner. You heard an extract of that letter earlier in the episode. And so the search continued. Later that month, Quartermaster Sergeant Elliot, same dude from January 1916, updated the Red Cross with his own findings. This, by the way, is not the famous Pompey Elliot. Irwin was shot in the stomach in a charge on August 6th at Lone Pine. The ground taken had to be retired over and Irwin was left. If not a prisoner, he must be dead. Private Shanahan deposed to Irwin being shot. Witness was with Irwin on the boat and spoke of him as a fine fellow. Irwin was an artist on the staff of the Sydney Bulletin before enlisting. His father is station master at Katoomba, New South Wales. Witness sent the father the above information. The talk of George as an artist and George's dad as a station master isn't just to pad out the letter and get the money's worth out of a stamp. If you put the name George Irwin into the World War I Records database on the National Archives of Australia website, you get 15 different George Irwins who all served with the IAF in World War I, all with the same spelling, and 10 of those are from New South Wales. They needed as much detail as they could get to confirm that this George Irwin was the right George Irwin. In April 1916, the letters from Sarah Irwin about two men who had seen her son alive after Lone Pine was the only lead the Red Cross had that supported the idea of George still being alive. An officer of the Military Records Bureau wrote, quote, I beg to state that the official records of this department still show he is missing and no advice had been received that Irwin is a prisoner of war. Moreover, the version which you have already kindly furnished in this case points to the worst having happened to Irwin. If the mother could give them a name of the man who was alongside her son, it is said the latter was taken prisoner. Then we could pursue the further inquiry. End quote. Clearly, they were pretty certain that George Irwin was dead, but they were willing to chase down as many leads as they could. 
Indeed, by this point, George Irwin's military file was marked down as killed in action. Here Vera Deacon comes in properly and begins making inquiries on behalf of the Irwins. As we've already heard, Vera reached out to the prisoners of war in Turkey, and Corporal Cliff told her that though he knew all the Aussies in the camp, there were none from the 4th Battalion, and so no George Irwin. It took from April to October for this news to come back to the Red Cross. It's around now we think Vera began to write personally to the Irwins, and in a letter from early 1917 that Sarah Irwin thanked Vera for her personal interest in their case. Soon afterwards, Sarah would eventually travel to London to assist the Red Cross with the search, which explains why there are no further letters from her in the file. And then in October 1919, the confirmation came. Private George Irwin, 4th Battalion, killed in action 6th of August 1915. There ends the involvement of the Red Cross. All that would have been left for the AIF to do was give that name to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which had a different name then, but there's been so many characters in these stories we don't need to complicate things. And so George's name could be inscribed on a memorial at Gallipoli. This memorial is the Australian Memorial to the Missing, which is at the summit of Lone Pine, the site of one of the few victories for the Anzacs at Gallipoli. But it's not the end of the Irwins. Sarah and George never got over the death of their son. In 1926, 11 years after his death, Sarah and George were part of a pilgrimage of around 300 people made up of grieving families and surviving servicemen who travelled from Australia to Turkey via Britain and the Mediterranean to visit the ground upon which so many had fought and died for a war of empires. As there was no body for George, his name is on the memorial to the missing. As was common in those days, the Irwins used charcoal to take a rubbing of George's name at the memorial. And then they went home. Sarah especially never got over her son's death, and her house was always full of Gallipoli memorabilia. A cousin of George's recalled that the loss of George seemed to follow his aunt Sarah around like a ghost. It's really interesting. A lot of people named their houses after like the places where their family members died in the war. Really? Yeah, I didn't, didn't know, know that. that. Yeah. So like they'd be like the house would be Gallipoli or Lone Pine or whatever, and that was like one way of memorialising when oh. they didn't have a grave that they could go to. Yeah. 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 That's also why we have so many little town memorials as yeah, well. Yeah, You need somewhere to grieve. To go. Yeah. Yeah. The Red Cross, Wounded and Missing Vera did have some happy endings. As we talked about earlier, and Nicola herself discovered, Patrick Hogan thought his mate, James Shaw, was dead, but he was discovered to just be a prisoner of war. Not that it was easy to be a prisoner of war. Not that it is. Especially as the situation for the Germans deteriorated through World War I, the conditions of prisoners was the first to get worse. They got the worst cuts of horse meat and the end bits of bread, supplemented with sawdust and ground-up grass. War is hell. What a bummer. All right, so we'll move away from the Irwins, give them some privacy, and move back to the original focus of this episode, Vera and the Red Cross's work. In a different... In a different... In addition to the Irwins, she and her staff of mostly volunteers were working through their 25,000 annual requests for info from the Australians, with also a few Kiwis sprinkled in there. Due to the collapse of the German government and military, it was pretty rough finding some soldiers held in prisoner of war camps. Due to the complete obliteration of men's bodies, it was even rougher. Okay, so this bit's kind of funny in a Scooby-Doo way. You're I'm, a, I'm very intrigued how this is going to go. I think it's funny in like the most depressing way possible. So you're a soldier in early 1916 on the Western Front, and your mate gets shot, and you get him back to the trench, but he dies. And you're like, damn it, Jim! So you and your mates bury Jim in this little graveyard you've sort of established because a lot of men are dying you don't leave the bodies out yep. and you make him a little cross and it says Jim Jimson 2nd Battalion AIF um, you can't leave the body out because it's going to be eaten by rats um, so there were lots of little ad hoc cemeteries all around the trenches during the war um, basically since the war started because they'd been on the same like land mm. holding the positions for mm. so so long why is that Scooby-Doo though? you'll see oh okay I'm getting ahead of myself obviously yeah. 
And then in March 1917, the German army retreated. Wow! The Aussies had done... Allies. The Allies. The, the Aussies are the only By this point, the allies. Aussies hadn't done shit. <laughs> <laughs> the Allies had done such a good job, they just scared them right back to this massive concrete reinforced special trench the Germans had secretly built with like 100 metres of razor-sharp barbed wire in front of it. Oh, no. Oh, and why the Allies were chasing the Germans back to what we would call, I don't know, the Hindenburg Line? The Hindenburg Line. Your little ad hoc cemeteries got a bit blown up and damaged. You'll fix them, though. So you've lost your cemeteries once. So you've chased them all the way back to the Hindenburg Line. All right? And then in March 1918, after another year or so of what everyone was just chilling the fuck out in the Western Front stalemate, thanks to the Russian Empire, now the proto-Soviet Union pulling out of the war, the German army gained 50 divisions of troops that were free to throw at the Allies. So they did. So the Germans then attacked the Allies in what we call the Spring Offensive and pushed the Allies back to the sea, bombing the hell out of the original lines and your unofficial little cemetery that's already been repaired once in the process. Hey, what happened to Jim Jimson? Some recall seeing a cross with his name on it at the little graveyard near Arras, but some swear they saw him last week at a Red Cross canteen in London. This would just make the job of the Imperial War Graves Commission more difficult following the end of the war. That's a story for another time. So things are just getting more complex for the Red Cross and tracing men. So that's the scooby bit. Everyone's just going whoop, whoop, okay. whoop, being was, chased backwards and forwards. I was about to ask again. I'm like, I'm still not seeing okay. scooby I don't know. I think it's funny. I was waiting for someone to pull off a mask and be like, it was I, Hitler, all along. Like, well, oh, okay. Here we go. Peter Peterson. There's this bit in Peter Peterson's book. Peter and, Peterson. Uh, Peter Peterson? Oh, sorry, yeah. I thought you were talking about Peter Fitzsimmons. No, like, nothing's wrong with Fitz. You leave Fitz alone. I was like, why um, are you getting the name? It's so wrong. Peter Peterson wrote this really good book called The Anzacs Gallipoli to the Western Front. And it's actually a very, very, very good book if you're looking to get into military history. But there's this scene at the Battle of Messines in... I thought this was a Fitzy book, this scene. No, this is a... This is a I've been maligning Fitzy so long. <gasps> I've been telling no, everybody he never this. did this. I'm so sorry, he Fitzy. Might have. I haven't read his Monash book. Okay. But anyway, so there's this scene at the Battle of Messines, which is a really really cool battle just in terms of how big the explosions were war is hell but bombs are cool no they're not but they are kind of cool you know my thesis is about anti-bomb right? it's the thing it's like you're in a 10 year old boy just yeah. like oh i, I, I get it i get it there's this scene where so john monash at this point is rise i don't think he was he wasn't general by then but um he was quite high up in the australian he's he's core. there he's being john monash john monash was jewish and then hitler was also at the battle of messines on the other side obviously <laughs> and so there's this sequence in this book where there's just a moment where john Ma- and it's just like john monash looked across the lines towards the germans unbeknownst to him hitler future enemy of his people stand back and it's the most random moment of John Monash died before Hitler even came to power. He had no idea who Hitler was. I have and told so, so good. I, I told so many people that that was in Fitzy's Apologise to Peter I Simon. did. I'm sorry, Pitsy. I'm so Pitsy? sorry. Pitsy? <laughs> I'm just so ashamed. I've maligned him. It was Peter. And it's a really Look, good it's book, a Peter. But there's this one bit. It's like he keeps making fun of Pompey Elliot the whole way through. Like Pompey Elliot had his pants down during this battle because he'd been shot in the arse. I've done so many people. Apologise using his full name. I am sorry, Peter Fitzsimons. We're now Republicans. Alrighty. Not that kind of Republican. <laughs> I will buy a red bandana in honour of you. It was just such a clumsy moment. It's, it was like, yeah. how do we fit in Hitler? Like, you don't. You just don't. You don't need to fit in Hitler. So, how was Vera's work going? <laughs> wow, we're getting sidetracked today. Vera's work, however, wasn't going ignored, and it was growing. By the end of 1917, she had 60 staff under her and over 30,000 individual soldier files. In 1918, she was awarded an OBE. What does OBE stand for? I know Order of the British this. Empire. Thank you. She was 26 years old. I'm now 27. I don't have an OBE. 
I do. In no, my- you don't. <laughs> I really thought for a second. So, hey, that Thomas White guy from earlier, the pilot who was taken prisoner, did she help find him? No. Okay. Felt like you were setting something up there. Oh, we were. But alas, she didn't help locate White for his family, but I just really want to talk about Thomas White as well. So even though this episode's had about eight characters. So as we were talking about before, White was captured in 1915 and imprisoned in a couple of camps in and around modern Iraq and Turkey. So I'm not looking. Okay, good. Let me just make this black. Yeah. In July 1918, with the tide of the war turning, the Ottoman prisoners were being moved to a more secure location and White was put on a train to Constantinople. The train... No. The train was wrecked and Thomas ran away. So he disguised himself as a Turkish person and he hid on a Ukrainian cargo ship, which stayed for a month in the harbour at Constantinople. And only then the ship like set sail. So then they went to Odessa. Yep. So he got hold of a fake Russian passport, but oh considering the, t- the time period, there probably wasn't like a lot of like good bureaucracy happening. Like maybe it was just a piece of paper, like, this guy's Russian. Okay, um, we believe it. So he spends a month in Odessa and he ended up hating the Soviets because of it, because of all the violence. Yeah. And then he jumped into another ship that went to Bulgaria. Oh and God. from there, he just went to London. Oh my God. And he was like, shit. So he's like hanging out in London, like, hey guys, guess what? And he was actually mentioned in dispatches because of this escape. So he's in London and then he meets Vera Deacon and they get engaged. Oh, um, and they eventually returned to Australia to via the US, and they got married in Turak. Fancy, they're rich. Yeah. So fancy wedding in Turak. Yeah. So her dad had been Roman for three times after all. What? Like it's hard. You're rich enough for a Turak wedding. <sighs> Vera Deacon became Vera White, and she and Thomas played prominent political and social roles in Australia throughout the interwar period and into World War Two. Vera Vera would remain key to the development of the Red Cross in Australia. Side note, White ran for and served in the National Party, but nobody's perfect. So did Pompey Elliott. Nobody's perfect. He also briefly supported the New Guard, an Australian fascist military organisation, which is kind of ironic considering his and Vera's later work from 1939 to 1945. We're brushing over this here is coming up on her word limit and wants to save this all for her eventual episode on both the Red Cross's work in World War II and also... White's work in developing the successor to the Australian Women's Auxiliary Air Force, the Women's Royal Australian Air Force. Fun! That's cool. All comes full circle. Only not really. Vera's work with the Red Cross would continue until the end of her life, and she is often viewed as one of the most important figures in the development of the Red Cross as an independent organisation in Australia. The role of women in wars has always evolved, but I find it interesting how across one war, the Great War, even though Patty, Vera and Sarah were all involved in different ways, they all played very feminine roles of caring, tracing and connecting soldiers and their families. Mm. It shows both how varied the roles women could play even as far back as 1915, but they were also simultaneously quite rigid. Even when you're heading up a major department of the Red Cross, you're still an emotional crutch for a lot of people. Even when you're the wife of a three-time Prime Minister, you're making cups of tea and probably giving out condoms under the table. Aren't we all? And as a mother, all you can do is write and write and write and travel. And the Ehrmans really could only do that because I'm pretty sure they're quite wealthy. Um, I got Andre Brett to look up the the salary of a quartermaster at a station. And? Uh, and I think they'll pay quite well. That makes sense. Like, they had, he, he had the pay scales yeah. because they're in, like, shillings. I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know what this is. And means. inflation. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure they were quite well off. That makes Considering sense. Considering their son could go off and be an artist, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going off to be an artist... You're not worrying about where your money for bread is coming from. Yeah. Like, nothing can get up against artists. An okay. artist in Sydney, too. Of course. But, like, you know, you need a certain wealth, particularly yeah. at this time, to be able to do that. So all the roles for women, even though they were changing, they were still quite rigid. Yeah. Yeah. 
this is this is this is a bummer still. This is such a bummer. Um, this is actually why I screwed over Edith Piaf's later life in last episode because we wouldn't end on two bummers in a row. Edith Piaf didn't even die in Paris; she died somewhere else. But her husband probably drove her corpse back to Paris, so the French would think she died there. I I have no words, um, <laughs> but that's also an unnecessary reference to France. So get out of my house. Okay. Go. Got to get out of the booth. Get out of our really high-tech sound recording. I'm going to push this over. If it falls on me, I'm going to kill you. All right. Bye. All right. So this was Women of War for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We have some really fun things going on in the background there. We have a website now, in case you haven't noticed, womenofwarpod.com. Come join us. Subscribe to us on your favourite app. Give us a review. We love reviews. We're millennials. We need praise. Please and thank you. And that's all. Thanks for listening. I've been Hannah. I'm Nicola. Get out! End recording.